Hope you're doing well in spite of the smell. I'm a poet, didn't know it. If you need a copy of God's Word, raise your hand and Coop or Jim will be glad to give it to you. In case you haven't figured it out, when Peter and our worship team and others came in here this morning, they were overwhelmed by an odor. Apparently we have an animal that decided to crawl into the wall of the sound booth and give up the ghost. But I guess if you're going to die, church would be a good place to do it. I don't know. But that animal has departed this life and left its carcass somewhere in that wall back there. So that's the reason for the fans. And I appreciate the guys bringing the fans and uh, helping us move some of that odor out of here. We We owe a special debt of gratitude to the poor folks back there in the sound booth, so y'all leave whenever you want to. We will survive. You don't have, don't have to sit back there, and I think if the odor around you is, is pretty overwhelming, if you come closer to the front, this may be the one the time you have to sit on the front row at church and, and be glad, but if you prefer to come near the front, I think the odor is, uh, when you got a nose the size of mine, you tend to smell things no matter where they are. I smell stuff that's in Texas right now, so... Um, if you want to move up front, feel free to do that, but I think the fans have helped a lot, and again, we've got some candles and different things people have brought. Uh, what I was going to do is just have everybody take your chair and go outside, but then you've got to balance it, okay, or, or is it, we, there we go, do we prefer the uh, smell, or do we prefer the heat, and I'd rather pass out from the heat or the smell, so we're going to go with coping with the smell of the air conditioner and the fans, so I, I hope it's not... Uh, too bad. It, I can't smell it right here. And again, nose the size of mine. You can't smell it. Probably doing all right. Okay, turn to Acts chapter 19. Let me kind of tell you where we are, what we're going to do today, Labor Day weekend. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to have an, an incredibly long prayer service for those of you that are Tennessee fans. <laughs> those of you that are Tiger fans, we're now going to sing our fight song. Here's how you know there's a God. Ole Miss lost. We beat them. And Tennessee lost the same day. And the Cardinals won two games in the same day. So apparently there is a God. All right. Turn to Acts chapter 19. This portion of of scripture that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks is very uh, personal to me and to uh, those that are in leadership, elders, pastor, teachers in church, because what we are transitioning into in Acts chapter 20, if you'll notice the top of your handout, it says Paul's farewell to dot, dot, dot. We're going to be looking at several places, but what's happening in in Acts chapter 20, and the real focus, as we will transition into that, really spend most of next week on that, is Paul's farewell to the elders at Ephesus. And what an emotional moment it is, because he spent three years with these guys. He poured himself into them, getting them ready to lead that church when he was gone. He spent more time at Ephesus than he did any other church that he started. He loved those people. And as we saw last week, he came into Ephesus and it was in a place that was absolutely just 
dominated by the occult, by Satan, by witchcraft, by superstition. And he came in there and God did some amazing things to the point they had, a, they had a giant bonfire and people were bringing their magic books and their occult practices and all that they had and, and burning them and turning to Christ. We're going to see the result of that this week. That's going to be our beginning focus as he, as he ends that time at Ephesus and we'll see where he wants to go. But here's the one thing I want you to hone in on as we look at this this week and next week is the heart of Paul as a pastor. Now he is the apostle, the great apostle called to the Gentiles to take the gospel throughout the world. But he has a heart of a pastor. We've seen it, it, it as you read his epistles, it just comes out, it, it just, uh, just jumps off the page. We're going to see it here in a very graphic, poignant way, both with tears and, and um, emotional farewell and a legacy that he's passing on to them to say, now, here's the baton, carry on. As you read 2 Timothy, you see a lot of that in, in 2 Timothy because that was the last thing Paul wrote before he died to Timothy, his son in the faith, who will become pastor of the church at Ephesus. All of this being tied together both in scripture and, and historically. But you want, I want to make sure you see this focus in Acts chapter 20, which we head there, of the heart of a pastor. As he says to those pastor teachers, those elders, how to shepherd sheep. The sheep are incredibly valuable to their God, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are under shepherds, we need to understand how much God loves his sheep to value them as precious and to lead them and the qualities that they need, what they're looking for from their shepherds is number one, teach them truth. Number two, model truth for them. And number three, and I believe character-wise, what you're looking for more than anything else in a shepherd is humility. That they understand, we understand, and as I say, this is very poignant and very personal because I've spent three weeks studying this passage and most of the time, all alone at my office at home, just studying this over, and I've, I've read it many, many times, I've taught it, but again, I think God even taught me some new things in the last couple of weeks. But the reminder of what are, this calling, how special you are to your father, and I better handle it that way. To understand that it is a, a privilege it is a call, but it's not something that you take lightly. And if it ever becomes about me versus you, then I am in no position and should not be a leader. It is never about the leader. It is always about the sheep. What is best for God's sheep? And what does God want for them? Now give it to them. Teach them the truth. Even though, like with your children, do you ever have to tell your children something they don't want to hear? Hmm. Especially if you have teenagers. It's just kind of the way it is all the time. No. No. Maybe you didn't hear me. No. But there are reasons. You're not doing it just to be a jerk, even though, well, I don't know. You're not doing it to be a jerk. You're doing it why? Because you love them and you want what's best for them. Now, they may not agree, right? What do you mean I can't go with that boy that you never, you don't have any idea who he is and I can't ride around in his car all night? Why not? Because I said so. 
Well, that ain't good enough. Well, it's going to have to be tonight because you ain't going. And then we'll talk about it. Why do you do that? Because you want what's best for your children. God wants what's best for his sheep. And I better not ever forget that. As elders and pastor teachers and leaders, we need to understand it's always about what's best for the sheep. But here's the umbrella over which all of that falls under, that umbrella, and it's this. You'll not be humble, and you'll not be focused on always doing what's best for the sheep if you don't love them. And love means I want to teach you the truth because I care about you. I know it will set you free. I know it will make you everything that God wants you to be. So it begins with, in my personal life, our personal lives as leaders, that we love God with all our being. All our heart, all our soul. Jesus said, you want to sum up the law to those legalistic, self-righteous Pharisees? You want to sum up God's word? Sum it up real simply. You love God with all your being. And you love your neighbor as yourself. If I love God with all my being, how am I going to treat you? Really good. I'm going to care about you. I'm going to be interested in you. I'm going to want what's best for you. Even though we may totally disagree, I'm still going to love you. Why? Because that's, God loves you. So I should love you. So it begins with my love for my God, my Lord Jesus. Secondly, it transitions into my life as love for truth. To speak the whole counsel of God. Sometimes stuff you don't want to hear. But speak the truth in love. And then over time, what you will discover is that even though you may disagree with certain things and not like hearing it, that by the way I live, by the way, and again, it's not just Randy, it's pastor, teachers, elders. The way we live, we love God, live our lives that way, teach truth, model it, and you will understand he loves me. They really do. Give you a simple example. I wasn't going to do this, but I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit wants me to. We're praying about desperately trying to figure out what we're going to do about this building over here where all the rats are coming from and dying in our building. <laughs> they're fleeing that sinking ship next door. And they're coming over here. We don't have an answer yet from God about what, whether we should attempt to go after that building or not and lease it because it had to be remodeled. It's a lot of money involved. So you have the stewardship principle. What's best for the sheep? What does God want? Not what does Randy want or Steve want or Mike want or Chad want or, or all of our elders. Be great. So just take over friends. Well, maybe, maybe not. Now, whatever happens, there are going to be some people, let's say we decide not to take over friends. There will be some people that don't like that, aren't there? Sure. Let's decide we, let's decide we do. There will be some people that say, what are you doing? You can't pay for that. There's a balance between stewardship and faith. And what we have to do is seek not what we want. What does God want? That umbrella. You love the Lord. You love truth. You love the sheep. That great chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which most of you have heard. It 
even if you don't go to church, you've heard it a million times at weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not seek its own. At the, you know what the last verse in that chapter is, 1 Corinthians 13? And by the way, that 1 Corinthians 13 is, is dropped in Scripture right between two chapters on spiritual gifts. Not an accident. The last verse in 1 Corinthians 13 is this. Now abide these three. Faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. I can tell you I have faith. I can tell you I'm believing God. I can talk to you, and I do. I love the word hope. It's my favorite word in the Bible to describe Christianity is hope. Confident expectation. I can tell you that until Jesus comes back. How do you know that it's real in my life? my life when I love you. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples when you have what for one another? Love. And it means humble, servant, spirit, attitude toward you. What can I do for you? Not how can I use you? That's what a shepherd is. That's what we're going to see in Acts 20 is Paul's farewell as a shepherd, as a pastor, as he heads on. Philippians chapter 1 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you don't have to turn to either one. Paul writes these words about the Christians at those two churches, Philippi and Thessalonica. To Philippi, he writes these words. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Just an aside, every time I think about you, I thank God. Isn't that beautiful? The Christians at Philippi. Always in every prayer of mine making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. And I could spend several weeks just on that passage, but I will not. To the church at first at Thessalonica, he writes these words. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. We loved them. Now, go to Acts chapter 19, and let's see how he says goodbye. Acts 19. We talked about Ephesus last week and all that was going on, and I want to wrap up Ephesus, remembering this heart that we're looking at, Paul as the pastor. So look at chapter 19, verse 20. After all that had gone on and God was, the great things that God was doing in verse 20, 19, 19, chapter 19, verse 20, the Bible says, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. People were being changed regularly and by great numbers at Ephesus by the word of God. Verse 21, when these things were accomplished, here's Paul's plan. Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. 
So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So Paul stays at Ephesus for a while. He sends Timothy and Erastus on. Paul's big plan is, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to be there by Passover. Later we'll see. He says, I didn't make it to Passover. I want to be there by Pentecost. It's 50 days later. But ultimately, I want to get to Rome. Talked about that last week. That's his plan. That's for the rest of the book of Acts is him getting to Rome. What happens? So now he's still at Ephesus. And God is doing great things. Please don't miss this because we've seen it over and over and over again. If you don't get anything out of the study of the book of Acts, you need to get this. God is doing great things. God is working. People's lives are being changed. What's the very next thing that's going to happen every single time? Persecution. Opposition. Satanic oppression. Every single time. Why? Because Satan doesn't want you to succeed. He doesn't want the gospel to prevail. He doesn't want people being saved. Lives changed. He wants people just to be religious is all right. Just exist. Just hang around. Be cool. But not the gospel. Not Jesus. Not a changed life. Not coming to Christ, being changed, and going and preaching the gospel to other people. No, 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 no. We can't have that. That's what's going on in Ephesus. The entire this place that was so, we talked about last week, so wrapped up in the Satanism and the occult. The Holy Spirit has moved in, and boom, lives are being changed. Well, notice what happens. There's a riot, verse 23. And about that time, there grew a great commotion about the way. That means followers of Christ. A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana or Artemis, brought no small profit to craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess of Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. So again, God is working, great things are happening, and boom, a riot ensues. Now let's go back to Demetrius for a moment. Basically what they did, Demetrius and the silversmith that he's talking to, he calls the boys together. They have like a, a, a meet, staff meeting. He says, now men, literally said men, uh, we got a problem here. This Paul is turning a lot of people away from Diana and worship of her. So he acts like, what's going on? Our religion is being attacked. But the bottom line is what? The bottom line. The bottom line is Paul's coming in, a lot of people are being changed, and they're taking their magic books, and their occult practices, and they're turning their back on them, they're turning to Christ. They're not worshiping Diana anymore. And boys, we ain't making any money. That's Greek. We ain't making them any money. Because here's what they did. These silversmiths made these little idols. They were presented at the temple of Diana. 
like votives, as offerings. They were made by these silversmiths. There was at least, in the, in the Roman Empire, there were at least 33 of these shrines. It was the number one cult in popularity. There was at least 33 shrines where they would go and they would offer these sacrifices. So the silversmiths would make those. And obviously, notice verse 24, quote, It brought no small profit to them. Ephesus was the center of Diana worship. A lot of pilgrims would come there, and the guys, the silversmiths at Ephesus were cleaning up, selling these little votive idols. So their business is going down. So they stage, stage a massive protest, verse 28. They think their religion is being attacked, but the bottom line, it's about their profit. But they couch it in terms of our religion. They make an emotional appeal. They're not going to get the mob to react because we're not making money. So what are they telling the mob? Your religion is being attacked by this Paul guy and those people following him. They're attacking your religion. People are going to stop worshiping Diana all over the world or the Roman Empire. Just want you to know. So they have this mob mentality. What are we going to do? Look at verse 37 for just a moment. You brought these men here, talking about Paul and the others, who are ne- Paul's two companions. They're neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Paul had not gone out and attacked Artemis, Diana. They hadn't robbed anything out of the temple, despite the fact they're being accused of those things. They simply did what? There's a principle here for us to understand. They simply did what? Preach the gospel to people. Those people's lives were changed. They decided to turn their back on their false god, their cult that could not change them, and turn to Jesus Christ who was setting them free. That's the way you want to share your faith. Not spend your time attacking some, what someone else believes. Dialogue. Listen. Say, this is what you believe. Let me share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. How he can change your life. Who he is. And see what God's going to do. So look at verse 27 again. Not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of our great goddess Diana. All Asia and the world worship. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So what are we going to do? Verse 29. The whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater. They rushed into this theater there, which probably seated about 20,000 people. Quote, full of wrath. Look at verse 34. They found out that he was a Jew. Come back to that in a moment. All with one voice cried out for two Hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Two hours with one accord, full of wrath. Later on, Paul would write, I have fought the wild beasts at Ephesus. And most theologians think this is what he's referring to. That it was just a wild mob, thousands upon thousands of people screaming, Great is Diana, and angry at Paul. Verse 33. They drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, and he wanted to make his defense to the people. When they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, who is this Alexander? He's simply, he's not a 
follower with Paul. He wants to make sure that the Ephesians understand we Jews had nothing to do with this. Don't blame us for these followers of the way. That's Paul and his people. Don't blame us. So the Gentiles also attack him. For That's where the two hours comes in. All the Gentiles in their mind, the Ephesians and, and uh, Demetrius and the Silver, all they see is Paul, his followers, and these Jews are creating problems for us. And Alexander say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not part of that. But obviously it didn't do him any good. Now go back to verse 30. So Paul's two companions, here I want you to see his heart. Paul's two companions are seized, and they're taken into the theater. Again, they're screaming, mob, thousands of them. Look at verse 30. Paul wanted to go into the people. He wanted to go into the theater himself. He wanted to go into the people. The disciples would not allow him in. And some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Two groups of people. This tells you something about Paul. He cared. He wanted to go in there and defend the two guys that were seized, his traveling companions. They'd seized him. He wanted to go in. The disciples, Paul, don't do that. Please don't. But also, he had the great respect of the city officials. These were not believers. These were officials of Ephesus that you don't need to go in there. Now, probably what they were doing was just say, we've got to stop whatever's going on, and maybe this is going to make it worse, but also to protect Paul. Don't go in there. There's a good chance you'd be killed. But Paul wanted to. He didn't leave. He didn't flee. He wanted to go in. He was bold, well-respected. So verse 35, what happens? The city clerk quieted the crowd. Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. Again, you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, verse 38, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone. The courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason by which you may account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Here's his argument. Here's what he says. This is a city clerk. Basically, this was the guy in charge there. They haven't broken any of our laws, Paul and his companions. You're bringing them here. They haven't broken anything. They haven't stolen anything. And if Diana is the great goddess that we say that she is, she can handle this. But here's his real concern. He says, we're in danger of being called out for this uproar if you guys don't cut it out. In other words, Rome is going to what? They're going to step in and handle things for us if we can't handle our own stuff. 
So we need to shut this thing down. And if you've got a legal problem, when they break a law, we've got councils. We've got a lawful assemblies. Bring it there, and we will deal with it there. Rome is not going to put up with any kind of rebellion. So let's let it go. Leave it alone. They're spreading the gospel by simply being loving. Just preach the truth. God is bigger than Rome. God is bigger than Ephesus. God is bigger than Diana. God will handle this. Paul said, Let, just speak the truth. Just defend the faith. Let's move on. His plan, I want to get to Jerusalem by Passover. And I want to get to Rome. So I'm going to leave Ephesus. We're going to come back to Ephesus. But let's go to chapter 20. Look at what happens in Macedonia and Greece quickly. Acts chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased at Ephesus, Paul called the disciples to himself. He embraced them. He departed to go to Macedonia. When he had gone over that, over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. So after the riot in Ephesus is over, notice what Paul does. Back to what we began today to talk about. Notice the heart of of the pastor. He loves these people that he's shared with. He's led to the Lord. He's discipled so many of them. He wants to go back and see them and love on them, see how they're doing. Notice what it says at verse 1 and 2. He called the disciples to himself, number one. He embraced them. And he leaves to go to Macedonia. When he had gone over that region, he encouraged them with many words. He embraced these disciples. He encouraged them with many words. He spent time with them. He loved them and spent time with them, encouraging them, reminding them they were living in a pagan land. They were the children of God. They were part of the church of Jesus Christ. And to bear up and persevere. That's exactly where we are in 2019. We live in a land that's post-Christian, our culture. But God has, it's a great time to be a Christian in this culture, to stand up for truth in a loving, compassionate way. Dialogue, interact, persevere, don't give up, because Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Don't give up. He embraced them. He loved them. He spent time with them. By the way, you go back and you study this in 2 Corinthians. You let Scripture interpret Scripture and history. When Paul gets here, he's really, again, hurting and down. In 2 Corinthians, he writes these words. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, what we just looked at. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. We didn't know if we were going to survive. We thought we were going to die. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. He's just honest. We're being persecuted in all kinds of directions, like the riot at Ephesus and other things. Inside, we're afraid. Outside, we're being attacked. We thought we were going to be killed. And yet, what does he spend his time doing? Embracing encouraging, 
and loving on these disciples, even while despairing of his own life, the heart of a pastor, he loved them. He persevered in his ministry to both non-believers and to believers. He poured himself into them as much as he possibly could. So verse 2 of chapter 20, he comes to Greece. It's a basic area would be called Achaia. Primarily, he spends this time at Corinth. Spends three months there working, probably collecting the offering that he wants to take to the poor saints at Jerusalem. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that the believers at Jerusalem who were Jewish were in very difficult times, very, very in hard, hard, difficult times, very poor. And he was taking up an offering from the Gentiles to take to the Jews to help them and to promote the unity of the body, the church, one Lord, one faith. One baptism, neither Jew nor Greek. So he wanted to leave Corinth, and he wanted to be in Jerusalem by Passover. Look down at verse 6. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Unleavened bread is one of the feasts that's part of the festival of Passover. He didn't make it to Jerusalem for Passover. So then his goal becomes, okay, I didn't make Passover, I'll try to make Pentecost, which is 50 days later. Unleavened bread, and we're not studying that now, but magnificent picture. The festival of Passover had three feasts. One was Passover, one was unleavened bread, and the other was first fruits. That festival, three feasts. Passover was one day, and then unleavened bread lasted seven days, and then uh, first fruits pictured the resurrection, Passover pictured justification of salvation, and unleavened bread pictured sanctification, the three tenses of salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification, resurrection, you go home. That's what Passover was, and he wanted to be there to celebrate that one. He didn't make it. But he celebrates it at Troas with these believers, the feast of unleavened bread. So that's his plan. He wants to get there. He doesn't make it. Now, back to verse 6 again. Just a little note. We sailed from Philippi. We. Plural pronoun. The author is now back with them. Luke is now back with Paul and the boys. Luke is now with them. And by the way, this is not just that Luke's with them. Okay, Luke's there. What was Luke's occupation, profession? I know he's following in, he's in ministry. But what was he trained to do? He was a physician. Who needed a physician more than anybody else at this point in time in his life? Paul did. It was a great comfort to him to have Luke there in his downtime, both physically, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually. He's struggling. He needed Luke. Luke's now back with him. He's tired. He's sick. Paul needs him. He'd been exposed. He'd had abuse. He'd had his, he had his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. It was with him all the time. During his ministry, he traveled 12,300 miles, covering about a 1,500 square, mile, uh, 1500 square miles in land over a period of about 16 years and constantly being attacked and having people trying to kill him. Even here, the Jews are going to try to kill him at sea as he sails from one place to another. Verse 4, chapter 20. Verse 3, excuse me. He stayed at Greece three months, Corinth. And when the Jews plotted against him, he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. The Jews said, when he gets on the water to go to Syria, we'll throw him overboard then. 
So Peter of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of, Thess- Thess- of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychius, and, Tr- and Trophimus of Asia. By the way, he's got all these people with him because he's carrying all that money and the offering to take, and these are, these are representatives of different churches that are going to take the offering to the believers at Jerusalem. So he gets to Troas, number three on your handout. He gets to Troas, verses 7 through 12. He stays there on the first day, uh, chapter, he stays at Troas seven days, end of verse 6. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message till midnight. I want to look at Troas and then we're going to stop for the day. But again, I want you to come back to, keep in your mind, the heart of this pastor. He wants... Look at verse 7 one more time. He stays there seven days at the end of verse 6, even though he's in a hurry to get on, to get there by Pentecost. So the European missionary efforts began at Troas. What you're seeing here is the first recorded description, verses 7 and 8, of a Christian worship service. I wonder if they had dead animals there that they had to smell and deal with. Probably did. Probably did. This is the first recorded Christian worship service. For that reason alone, it's really cool to read about. But here's what I want you to notice. Look at verse 7. At the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day. Please don't miss that little saying. This is where you see his heart. He is worn out, tired, sick, down. He's ready to get on the boat the next day and go. He ends up staying all night long to minister because they needed him. The heart of a pastor. He didn't say, you know, i got to catch a plane tomorrow. He just said, well, this is where God has me right now. I'm going to minister to these people. Let's briefly look at this worship service. Let's see what they did. All right, number one. What day of the week did they meet on? Verse 7. First day of the week, what day would that be? Sunday, they make their meeting again. Cool. First recorded Christian worship service. They're meeting on Sunday. The early church, we talked about this many, many times in Acts, was exclusively Jewish at first. Obviously, Gentiles are coming in by the hordes now. But it was exclusively Jewish. Why did they start meeting on Sundays? What day did Jesus rise from the dead? On Sunday, on the first day, early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb and he wasn't there. He rose from the dead. Also, Sunday was a work day for them. Saturday was their Sabbath for those, the Jews. Sunday came to be called the Lord's Day. In Revelation, when John's writing, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Paul, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, said, on the first day of the week, when you come together, bring your offerings. You, bring, you worship together. You give together. First day of the week. The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, the day the church age began, was on a Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. Verse 7, back again. First day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. There's two things going on here that they did. Break bread is used twice and referring to two different things. Number one, they came together and they had what they called an agape feast, a love feast. They got together. What does fellowship mean in Greek? Getting together and eating chicken. 
That's what they did. I don't know if they ate chicken or not, but they came together, they met together, and they spent time at what they called a love feast. They shared a meal together. But after that, they also shared the Lord's Supper together, celebrating the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The love feast, then the Lord's Supper. Now, verse 8. This is that worship service. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. So their first worship service was not during the day. When was it? It was at night. Primarily because Sunday would have been a work day for most of them. They had to work, and they got off work and did what? They went to church. That's what you should do, see? You work all day, and then you go to church. That's what they did. They met at night in the upper room, many lamps. By the way, the fact they're meeting in an upper room tells you they didn't have a church building. Where'd they meet? Somebody's house. They met at somebody's house. The first church building that we know of in history was about the 3rd century B.C. They met in homes. Sometimes they met in tombs in the catacombs. They met wherever they could. They got together because Jesus had told them wherever two or three are gathered, I mean, you're midst. So, it's not the building. It's where you are. You could be in a building, be in a home, be out on a parking lot, be on a beach. That'd be a nice place, be on the beach. One of the greatest times I ever had with the Lord was sitting in a nasty cabin at Waldoxy, Mississippi. When you were growing up, it was by, by law. If you went to church in Memphis, you had to go to camp at Waldoxy, Mississippi. It was a law. I don't know how they managed to accomplish that, but I went to Waldoxy many, many times. But I was down there on a, on a trip, and I was the day speaker, and the guy, another guy's campus crusade was the night speaker. And God taught me so much in that nasty little cabin from that guy, just me and him talking between in, in the messages that he had. Uh, he taught me about a message that he had. This was 1985, 86. Uh, I'd been in ministry about a year, two. And he, taught, he spoke on eternal perspective. I will never forget that message. It changed my understanding about life, that you live with an eternal perspective on everything, not right now, but big picture. You don't, he called it living for the line, not the dot on the line. I'll never forget it. Never spoken to the guy since. But it had great impact in my life. So you see the Paul, the pastor, he's ready to depart. He's going to go to verse 13. Drop down to verse 13. He went to the ship and he sailed to Assos. There intending to take Paul on board. We went, take Paul on board. He had given orders intending himself to go on foot. He planned to walk this next leg to get there to go. It was 20 miles Way he wanted twenty, he was going to walk that twenty miles. So now back to verse seven. First day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. The Greek word there for spoke is the English word dialogue. He listened to them, talked to them, encouraged them answered their questions for hours and hours till midnight. Then you have just a really amazing event, the Eutychus event. Look what happens in verse 9. This is their worship service. 
in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. Whoever goes to church and falls asleep. I love this. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. You see, if you fall asleep during a sermon, bad things can happen to you. Don't fall asleep at church. They're in an upper room, third floor. He's sitting in the window because they got all these candles going and all these lamps and big smoke. Where would you want to sit if you could? He had the prime seat. He's sitting by the window and he's overcome. And he falls out, and falls out the window dead. Now some people who are critics of Scripture say that he really wasn't dead. Well, Luke is there who's writing this. Luke was a physician. Um, you ever seen the, the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? If you're old enough, it's a great John Wayne movie. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Liberty Valance was the crook in the movie, and, and uh, John Wayne shoots him from the shadows. They think Jimmy Stewart shot him, and the uh, doctor comes over. Everybody hates Liberty Valance. He's just a horrible criminal. And he walks over to him, he looks at him, he says, Whiskey! They give you whiskey, they're like, he's not dead. He drinks, the doctor drinks him and hands it back, and he looks at him, spits on him, and goes, he's dead. And walks away. Luke probably knew dead. He probably knew dead. So he falls out of the window, dead. Verse 10. But Paul, heart of a pastor, he went down, he fell on him, you take us, he embraced him, and he said, don't trouble yourselves, his life is in him. Paul didn't know what he, what he was going to do, but the guy was dead, he went to him, he embraced him, and God raised him from the dead. And when he had come up and broken bread and eaten, talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. You think Paul had their attention after this incident? He goes over to the old man who fell out of the window and he's raised from the dead. They continue talking and ministering. Even though he's got to depart and go walk 20 miles, the heart of a pastor, he ministered to them till daybreak. He fell on him. He embraced him. It's a picture here of, of tenderness. Notice the end of the incident. They brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Not written well in English. It means they were comforted a lot. A whole lot. Wow. Our God. Our God. We're going to stop there today, but he, because what we're going to do next week is you're going to see Paul's farewell, we've seen it now, Corinth, Greece, Troas, Ephesus, Macedonia, all of those areas, he's moving on to God's next phase for him. But here's what I want you not to miss, please take away from this. And you see it when you read his epistles, even though he had to move on, he had to get to Rome, and he ends up arrested there, we'll see as we go through. He loved these people. He constantly wanted to disciple them. He constantly was checking on them. When I hear of your faith, uh, we quoted earlier from Philippians, every time I think about you, I praise God for you. Constantly, I love you. I want God's best for you. When he gets with those Ephesian elders, we're going to see this next week. I mean, they, these guys are all bawling, embracing, hanging on to him. 
Because it says to them, knowing they would never see him again. Last story, and then I'm done for today. Some of you, I've told this before, but it meant so much to me and the two guys I was with. We were discipled for years of video at the Bartlett campus through the precept Bible studies I did by a guy named Wayne Barber. Wayne was a pastor at church at Chattanooga, and then he uh, just took, we finally got to meet him. He came to Memphis to speak, and we picked him up. It was me and Scott Jones and Chris Ellison. We picked him up at the airport and went and had dinner with him, and then we went to hear him speak that night. And I, I loved when he taught me so much, the way I studied the Bible, and so much I learned from him by video. And I got to meet him. And that night, and Wayne was a big man. He was about 6'7", 280, played college basketball, but he was just a giant teddy bear. He loved people. He died about two years ago. You know, and I think I've t- I shared this with you. He was speaking at Billy Graham's place, The Cove, in North Carolina, went back to his room and died. And he'd actually talked about that over the years. That's the way he wanted to die. And that's exactly what happened to him. But that night, here in Memphis, he spoke at the Oprah Center. We went, and he was speaking on Galatians. And one of the things he said, and I'll never forget it. Scott and I talk about this all the time. This big man, he's standing up there, and he's just bawling. I mean bawling. And he says, I don't know how much longer I have on earth. He had about five or six more years. He said, but I want to finish well. That's what we're going to see next week, Paul says to the Ephesian elders. I want to finish my race with joy. And he had a tough race, and he looked at it as joy. When you have that perspective, you love people, and you want them to know Jesus. That's our heart. As Christians, as leaders, to love sheep and then love people. Let's pray.